2: HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org slash B-I-Z.
0: So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The devil runs his groove in that rhythm and blues that It's gonna get you in the air.
3: Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. My name is Souther Teague.
4: And I'm Greg Benson. Guys, what do you say, gentlemen? Here we are again, uh, separated by long distances and, and the pandemic that still surrounds us. Uh, how's everybody holding up? Okay. Holding up all right.
5: Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, were, uh, we were we were just talking before the show that here in New York, uh, Phase Three got pushed back. It was supposed to start on Monday, but it's been pushed back indefinitely because of the rising spike in cases across the country uh i mean i i'm i'm the the lone non-restaurant owner here what is what do you guys think about that
4: uh well i don't know i saw that as well just right before the show but i don't know what's going on in california with with damon but his place is here in new york so i'm certain he's got his finger on his pulse as well Now we were intent on opening for the you know um limited indoor seating which was supposed to start on monday uh, we've already been doing for the past week limited outdoor seating, which has been—I mean, you've heard me say it before throughout this thing—that the the lemonade stand thing that I was running, selling to-go cocktails and and you know bottles of liquor <coughs> like a liquor store—you uh, know—it was largely busy work. It was just something for me to do to stay active and to show the public that we are fighting and struggling and trying to remain here and hopefully going to be here when all this ends um the same is true for the outdoor seating uh i have 26 seats um which is less than you know what i could normally hold inside uh the bar usually hovers around 30 and spikes into the 40s often um but it takes twice the labor uh to literally set up the cafe every day and to break it down every evening and and to run it because someone has to be inside making the drinks and someone has to be outside serving them so suddenly we went from one bartender to two minimum and three on the weekends because it's even busier because we're going to push out into the parking spaces uh, starting hopefully this weekend. Uh, so it'll be three on the weekend. So we're doubling or tripling our labor uh, for basically what amounts to a quarter of the typical revenue. So revenue way down, labor way up. It's still just again kind of busy work and just our efforts to show the community that we hope to be here when all this is over. Um, I'm fearful for Uh, lots of restaurants who have spent the last couple of weeks planning and strategizing and possibly even hiring people on and training to prepare for phase three opening and then have it be swept out from under them. Like you said, off air kneecapped. Right. Um, So, you, you know, this is not a good outlook. And, and I think that, you know, one of the real problems is that, you know, I've talked about this before too, how we broke it up, And let state by state control what's going on instead of uh, as a federal system that means we're like basically 50 little nations trying to do this and and we have close borders and so it's just not working Um, i feel like leadership is failing us in a lot of ways uh because of that Uh, and i don't you know i I feel like we we shut down the economy so we paid the price but we did not get the prize of squashing the you know the, the the pandemic like other nations did you know they all paid the price they shut down their economies but you know New Zealand is is already back to a place where they're so low on cases that they've they've started having stadiums <coughs> refill with with people to watch sporting events i mean it shocks me wow. to think that we're we've already talked about closing that off for another year and they're back to it because they they, they as a people and as a nation stepped forward and did what they had to do to to stop this thing as quickly as possible whereas we're dragging our feet anyway I'm getting off on the political side of it all I guess <laughs> Damon uh what's what, what what if any changes does that mean for 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 grand Army
3: well you know me, I'm always an optimist, so I'm gonna you turn are, this around. Are, it's, it's, one of the, it's one of
4: the reasons, it's one of the reasons I keep you on as one of my closer friends because I'm always like, you know, I'm Eeyore and you're Pooh, right? Like, you're always upbeat.
3: Wow, man, <laughs> thank and you. You're, and
4: you're rarely wearing pants,
3: <laughs> I'm not wearing pants right now. Uh, good, good. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, uh, just to like. They're a little, I don't know, just like to switch it up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, phase three was not something we were going to adopt anyway. Right. Honestly. You know, we've spoke about this on the show before. It's like, both with each other and with uh, previous guests, I, you know, I'm personally not ready to go into a bar as or a customer. I? And yeah. and also, I don't, I don't think that we're prepared to let people in. But we also are fortunate as as can be I guess uh in certain you know types of situations like, such as this where you know our street is completely closed down and we are taking that over so we're actually expanding out into the street kind of like you're doing except for the fact that like you're in a, a parking space like directly in front of your bar correct
4: uh yeah we get three of the spaces right there on sixth okay. Street uh, about yeah. 15 feet again all oh, right us. because It'll you've add got, us uh, 20, 24 more seats. So we'll have okay. uh, 26 on the sidewalk and 24 off.
3: So, so yeah, okay. So, yeah, because you've got the whole... I always forget. It's not just a Morgan-Margo. You, you have the whole building on the corner. So you've got the whole space. Yeah. So for us, we've got the whole street. <laughs> because they, uh, they actually shut down State Street as one of the Safe Street Initiative uh, locations. And so we were kind of fortunate to have that right in front of our bar. So we've actually expanded out our staff. Uh, like pretty much hasn't changed and really isn't changing because where it was before, like where we have like one or two bartenders on who are like helping with like, you know, gathering all the, the takeout food and drinks and everything. And then someone watching the door and it's pretty much going to be the same amount of staff that are making the drinks Holding down the fort and then serving people outside, so it's not really that the, the amount of staff on duty doesn't change. What does change is the amount of people who are out, able to hang out, and and that's that's a good thing for us, you know. um, It's a it's our it's our phase two point five essentially, and it's it's you know we're we're staying positive and we're making the the right moves to keep the business afloat and keep everyone safe and expand in a different way, you know? I'm not talking yeah. about a psychedelic way. <laughs> but, like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, not but, always. Yeah, not but always. that, too, sometimes. Um, <laughs> that's why he
5: doesn't let people inside yet.
3: Yeah, yeah. exactly. You can't handle <laughs> it, man. Um, <laughs> Damon,
4: how, Damon how, many, how many seats are you going to be able to have outside? And my secondary question is, uh, are you... Some people are and some people aren't. I am. But are you allowing people inside to use the restroom?
3: See, okay, that's, that's a thing where we're still we still have to manage and monitor and yeah. But that's like, it's essentially we're making sure that there aren't people waiting indoors. Like, you know, the thing is with grand army, we always, we've always had this problem where we have one restroom and a lot of people in that place. So there's usually a line always. Uh, and we don't have a, a staff bathroom downstairs. So it's like, it gets really, crowded in, in the back area of the bar but like you know we're making sure that people are kind of one in and one out uh for the restroom that is like that is, that's a big thing that i don't think a lot of people thought of initially uh or put that much attention and focus on but yeah that is definitely uh, a factor um you guys, you
4: guys consider if, if you're going to have so many people outside you, you consider getting a porta potty out there
3: We've kind of talked about it. There's actually some construction happening on the street right now too, so it's there's. I think there already are a couple. Um, so like we're kind of, it's kind of weird. We're, like we've lucked out in a lot of very strange ways. I mean, again, like you say, you, you asked about like uh, occupancy outside. As many tables as we have to put out there, we're gonna put out there. But it's we're not limited to tables because people are bringing lawn chairs. I mean, like I'm telling you, the whole street. Is blocked off, so it's like a block party. So people are hanging out on their stoops; they're like putting tables and chairs out there of their own. So it's not even about our like actual Grand Army's furniture. It's about like wherever you, like people are just sitting down, like bringing blankets. They're, tail, they're tailgating. It's amazing, and yeah. it's you know like sounds, you sounds know awesome. New, New York City always finds a way. Yeah, it's, it's I think it's
4: very, I think yeah. one of the troubles that we're finding with the outdoor seating is the distance. Like, it's a long walk from making the drink at the bar at Amore Margot all the way down to the corner of Avenue A and 6th and then walk back, obviously, and then go back to pick up glassware drinks, and drinks. Like, so much of it's really coming... Like, that's what I was curious about. How far can you spread before you're just literally too far to get there and back?
3: So, we're, we we talked about the, uh, the actual glassware versus uh, disposable situation. And, you know, I hate... We were on such a good path we're on a great track like with you know people were using tote i know bags this is this is just stuff. backing this us is, up so much yeah, yeah it's it's not just reversed it it's like reversed it plus you know it's pushed us way way further back you know like in california and a lot of parts of california straws were banned you know plastic straws were banned and now you know there are plastic bags and plastic straws everywhere because it's like you, you just have to, you know, and so that's, that's been tough, but we're, we're trying to be responsible with, you know, our, our staff's abilities of, you know, like, yeah, there's a lot of space and we're, we're, we're kind of, we're doing our own like phases of this, right? We're like, we're taking it one step at a time. We're still doing disposables for the time being, um, you know, as, as we progress, we're going to see like what our staff can actually handle. And then, you know, we want we, we want to create the best experience possible for our customers and for the neighborhood and you know if that means you know we don't want to have to like bust tables when the staff's too busy to do it uh and you know like have to like run back and forth a bunch of times to get a table cleared and cleaned and sanitized and ready for the next guest you know, we want to make that as quick as possible. So, yeah, for the time being, we're doing disposables. So, but it's not, I mean, like, people yeah, I would, th- ha- I
4: would throw this at you. Um, you know, Laura Newman, a mutual friend of ours uh-huh. down in Birmingham, Alabama, her bar, Queens Park, uh, she has uh, sanitizer and towels on every table. they're doing disposable service, yeah. throwing away their own stuff. But she has a note on every table, you know, a little sign that says, it's just like the gym, wipe it down when you're done. So the guests are pitching in and helping. Oh,
3: that's great. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Okay. We yeah, we should do that then. Because we have all the sanitizer and wipes and everything, but yeah, Because yeah, again, that, that be distance
4: is what's gonna kill you. And you you not being able to get to that table before someone wants to sit down, they're gonna sit down before you've sanitized it and that kind of defeats the whole fucking purpose, right?
3: Let me let me ask you this. Let me ask you guys this. Are you uh when you go out to dinner, I mean like depends on like if I'm not talking like if you're at per se or something like that, but like are you like a plate stacker at the end of your meal? Do you like start start the bussing process for the the wait staff? Like, of uh, course, of I course. Am,
4: yeah, I am not. I find that uh, I don't like that, but but I but I I see why people do it, and i i I get the I get the notion. Um, I mean, I
3: think it's a great thing to do if you work in the biz and you know how to. There's a there's an, exactly, a, an there's art a how. form, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, like to me, I think the. Uh, I love that idea. Laura was awesome. And yeah, I think she's right. we're going to have to use that, borrow that, and definitely give her credit for it, of course. Um, but yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I think, far- I
5: think we just did give her credit. Thanks,
4: Laura. Yeah. Thanks. You yeah, the best, Laura. <laughs> thanks, Newman. Congratulations. She literally just closed on a house yesterday. It's got oh, a no. bunch of bedrooms and a pool. So we're all going to Birmingham. Nice.
2: Um <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we'll it out.
4: We've, we've chewed up a good chunk of the show on important stuff, so I don't want to diminish it. Um, but I feel like uh, we should, uh, Greg, you should maybe talk about our guest and bring her into the room.
5: Hell yeah, absolutely. So uh, joining us today from uh, Steamy, Steamy, Kentucky, we've got Peggy No stevens She is the first female master bourbon taster in the world and the founder and president emeritus of the Bourbon Women's Association. Uh, Peggy, Super awesome to have you on. How are you?
2: Well, I'm great, guys. Thanks for having me. Hope y'all are doing well and healthy.
5: Uh, as good y'all as can be. <laughs> maintaining, maintaining. <laughs> still here. That's what that's what I, I say whenever anyone says, "How are you?" I'm like, eh, "Still here."
2: Yeah. That's right. In yeah. fact, it was so funny. I was talking to someone the other day, and I said, "Remember in the good old days when we used to do presentations." you know to actual live audience and it's so yeah. funny that you almost think of it as in the good old days
4: <laughs> yeah it's yep. it seems like a distant uh you know distant place we on the show here we've been referring to it as old earth and we're somewhere in between old earth and new earth but we don't know how far <laughs> away we are from new earth yet right. uh, but old earth is gone mm-hmm. um first female master bourbon taster in the world Talk to me about what a master bourbon taster is, and what sort uh, of—I'm sure arduous but delightful work you had to go through to get that title.
2: Well, actually, uh, my—and that's why I really relate to the restaurant talk. uh, My my business um, when I very first started my career was in the hotel industry and catering, convention services, events, and then I was headhunted by a spirits company, and that's what gave me the opportunity to become a master bourbon taster. Uh, I worked at a distillery as the guest services director and the master distiller at the time, I thought I had a very good palate. I've always been a foodie, uh, love culinary flavors, you know, anything and everything that has to do with the palate. And um, he started to train me formally. And I didn't know at the time that I was being trained to be the first female master taster. Um, But, you know, as I progressed in my training and then it was official, um, then that's when I really found out because they did an announcement in the newspaper, and it was picked up by the AP and hit, I think, over 90 newspapers across the nation that I was the first female. And I just remember that striking me almost as odd. Um, At the time, I was very appreciative of the opportunity, very excited about the opportunity, but at the same time, I had no idea that there weren't more women uh, in the industry who had that title.
4: Yeah, why, Peggy, do you think that is?
2: I just think it was the nature of the beast, Um, you know, Bourbon in general, you know, dating back to the 60s, was primarily, you know, the marketing funds were put toward uh, men because that was the core target market for bourbon. And, you know, at the time, this was in the 90s that I became a master taster. uh, At the time, you know, we were just starting to dip our toe in the water, you know, of other target markets like women, you know, in the industry. And I just don't think we were there as a priority yet. Uh, And, you know, jobs in the spirits industry were kind of few and far between on the C-suite for women or, you know, marketing positions, production positions. I'm happy to say, though, fast forwarding to today, some of my very good friends have become master distillers, female master distillers, master blenders, master tasters. And uh, so we've definitely made some progress. More to do, though. More to do.
4: Yeah, there's, there's always more work to do.
3: Well, that's amazing. I, you know, I, uh, I worked with someone you probably know, uh, Linnell Smothers. I worked at her shop in Brooklyn for a while. And I, to me, like my, my entry into the world of like of, of bourbon was definitely, <laughs> it was very female forward, uh, because I was working with her and I was working with my friend Amanda Womack. And so like, that was my really, that was my like hardcore, like trial by fire, like, like education on bourbon and american whiskey so i I've, for some reason i guess i've always just thought of it as more of like a, a female like spirit and at least for me and i've always thought that was really cool so it's cool to hear that you've had like a really impactful like experience in that that spirit category and there's not like how many people are actual i'm air quoting but we can't see each other master tasters (laughs) like uh who who, how many people hold that title
2: well you know that's a very good question and in our industry uh we're a little unique it's not like the wine industry where you are testing to take you know a sommelier test Mm -hmm. uh and there's definitely credentials along the way and it's a universal process you know, in our industry, it's based on each and every distillery and the position that they want to create, uh, the titles that want, you know, that the owner wants to be held. Um, So that's why you see such a variation in titles of master blender, master taster, master distiller. Um, And so it's something that you can't go to school for necessarily. You know, it's something that you're appointed, you know, once you're in, in the work world. So great. Right.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like being a chef, right? You're you're I always said, you know, I was a chef for a long time and I, I always used to say, you are whatever it is your boss calls you. You are whatever it says on your paycheck.
2: That's exactly <laughs> right. Right? That's exactly that's right. right. And uh if you want to, uh, call, me the,
4: that, you want to call me not, the mixologist, I guess I am, right? If you're paying, yeah. that's what I am.
2: That's <laughs> right. And I guess that's really where the start of my fascination of uh female bourbon drinkers came was when I was traveling around as a master taster and conducting bourbon tastings across the world. Uh, the, you know, it was a predominantly male audience and there'd be a trickle of women. And, you know, the men would ask all the questions and the women would be a little gun shy, you know, or come up after the session was over to ask their question. But they were just as passionate and loyal uh, to the product. And so, you know, I thought we should be talking more, you know, to the women. And that was kind of the catalyst for me, even back then to start, Thinking about um, creating a platform for women who enjoy whiskey.
3: Yeah,
4: right. And so, you, and so you did that. You created the um, the the bourbon the, the women Bur- bourbon women association. Uh, and how long has that been around? And what is its goal? And, and how do you go about achieving it?
2: Sure. Well, I started my my own company uh, back in two thousand eight. So I guess I was a couple years into my formal company, Peggy No Stevens and Associates and then did some focus groups of women across Kentucky uh, in about 2010. And then once we received kind of the results and knew that this is something that definitely should happen, we launched formally at the governor's mansion in Kentucky. The first lady spoke about you know women and bourbon and how we've been really part of the industry for 200 years. It's just that we didn't get credit for it at the time. So um, 2011 was the formal launch uh, for bourbon women,
4: outstanding. I mean, it's nine years. You're you're coming up on your tenth year anniversary. You're gonna we you gonna are. Do We're coming
2: up on ten years, and we also have what we call bourbon women branches um, across the nation. We're in eleven states uh, that also do uh, you know tastings and events and education, you know, for women and whiskey. And it's it's a cultural thing. It's a lifestyle um, that we have found that women you know come together and really bond and and share that. And so part of our mission is an education platform. You know, everything we do, we teach. And we teach about, you know, whiskeys and foods and pairings and production methods. And, you know, that is truly, I think, what we've been known for. But I want it to be even more than that in our industry. So we became a 501c6. So that we could partner with associations like the kentucky distillers association discus you know and really help in any way we could with legislation pertaining to spirits
3: very cool
4: i mean yeah that's that's incredible and i feel like it's uh uh work that was kind of overdue right like you said you were already women were already obviously part of the process it's just you didn't get any uh, light shined on you
2: well, and, um, you know, if you think about it, we're the other half of the population, so it's a great market, you know, for the industry. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. there's
4: the, there's always that.
3: <laughs> yeah. And also, uh, I mean, like, to me, it's like you can't have the Kentucky Derby without bourbon, but you also can't have the Kentucky Derby without crazy hats. And, that's right. you know, so, like, yeah, yeah. I, I I see like I see more of like the female side of the bourbon industry than I think I do yeah. the male side. <laughs> but I like yeah. hats. Everyone knows that. So <laughs> there's that truth. Truth. <laughs> but uh, it's cool. well,
4: well, let's take a break uh, and hear from our sponsors here on Heritage Radio Network. We'll come right back and keep talking with Peggy No Stevens, uh, and we're going to talk about your book. Which fork do I use with my bourbon? Stand <laughs> by, everybody. We'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Square. You might know Square from their little white card readers, but Square has a lot more tools that can help businesses, especially now that they're having to figure out how to safely reopen and make things work in this new normal. So many are stepping up to the challenge, like Fifth Hammer Brewing in Long Island City. To adapt, Fifth Hammer's co-owner Mary Izette created a Square online store so customers could browse available beers build an order, and safely pick up cans from the taproom. I was able to set up our online store within 24 hours of moving to a to-go model. The Square online store allowed Fifth Hammer to keep beer production going, serve their local customers, and retain employees. It's also very easy to train your staff on. They will be able to receive,
5: fulfill, and provide your customers with a contactless pickup in no time.
1: If you're a business owner, Square wants you to know it has tools that can help you shift your business, like Fifth Hammer is doing. No matter if you're brewing beer, baking bread, or mixing to-go cocktails, you can start taking online orders in minutes with pickup and delivery. And if you're selling in person, Square can help you accept contactless payments. All these tools work together, and they're all in one place. You just need a Square account to get started. See all the ways Square can help your business right now by visiting square.com slash go slash speakeasy.
3: Welcome back to the speakeasy. In the studio today, we have Peggy Node stevens and we were just talking before the break about uh, all the really cool stuff that she's done. Uh, she's a master taster, bourbon, and uh, all just kind of a powerhouse uh, in the, the bourbon world, and She recently put out this book, uh, which is called "Which Fork Do I Use with My Bourbon: Setting the Table for Tastings, Food Pairings, Dinners, and Cocktail Parties." That's my life right there. But lately, (laughs) lately it's been a party of one uh, these days. But (laughs) uh, but this is really cool, and you know, actually, it's kind of it's kind of interesting because like a lot of books have been uh, like kind of delayed in their their release because of the like covid and quarantine and all this stuff but this is actually great for that because we are spending a lot of time with home like with the dining at home and drinking at home and with guests like a small gathering of guests and what better way to plan a party for a small group than cracking this book open so when did you get started on this
2: Oh, gosh. I mean, that's kind um, of a trick
3: question, right? You've been yeah. thinking about this for a long time. <laughs> you,
2: you know, it's it's funny. Well, first of all, um, you know, who else would come out with an entertaining book during, you know, shutdown, right? Uh, in isolation, but that did not stop us. Yeah. And then we scheduled our launch for the book right before the Kentucky Derby in May. That's when it was targeted. And, of course, that was moved to September but that didn't stop us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the reason why, it, I think we just felt compelled to go ahead and launch it. Um, and it's just like you said, this book, um, gosh, I'd say it has been in my head anyway for probably the last 10 years. Uh, it's just, you know, things got in the way, um, just like work and kids and everything else. And I kept putting it aside and putting it aside. And then finally felt compelled um, to write it along with my, one of my very close friends in the bourbon industry and also an S- expert, uh, Susan Riegler. So it took us about a year even to, to really write it and a publisher in Kentucky jumped on it and it came together quite nicely. And I think why is because it's everything that Susan and I always knew as experts, you know, how we conducted tastings to people. Um, things that we would teach uh, and educate on. I, I mentioned that I was in the hotel business. Um, gosh, everything I've ever learned with event planning. And so truly, it was like almost a labor of love uh, because, and that's hence the, the uh, title, which fork do I use with my bourbon? You know, it's kind of a play because I'm a, I'm a certified etiquette consultant. And I wanted to make sure that people knew, and it's kind of tongue in cheek, that we want bourbon to be very approachable. And you don't have to be an expert in order to enjoy it in your home and entertain your friends, you know, at home. And and just some of the tricks of the trade was our goal to share. You know, we just wanted to pass on knowledge. And and that's how it came to be. And, and that's truly how the title of the book came to be, because we wanted people to know that, you know, you enjoy it in your style, in your own way. Uh, love bourbon however you want to love it. There's no true etiquette.
5: So I guess the answer is whatever fork you want, basically.
2: Whatever fork you want. If you want a <laughs> spoon, no problem. Um, and, you know, do I prefer a really stout Manhattan? Do I love my bourbon on the rocks without any water? Sure. Uh, but that doesn't mean you do. And so we we just want people to explore and have fun with it because that's what our industry is truly about.
3: Yeah, I think the the trick there is that you know, like for me it's like whenever I was Way very much younger. I I didn't I couldn't drink whiskey straight. It was it wasn't my it wasn't my spirit yet. Right, but like then one day it was my first bartending job uh, in the early two thousands. Um, I I had a bourbon and soda, or actually it was a scotch and soda, um, and it changed my life. It, it turned me into a whiskey drinker. Just a little bit of soda water cut it to where I could actually. I was still tasting the whiskey, right? But I wasn't. Right. It wasn't so aggressive to me as like just a straight spirit. And then what I started doing is I started cutting back on the soda and start drink, I started drinking whiskey on the rocks. And then eventually I just started drinking and eating. And that was, you know, everyone kind of finds their own way into it. You know, not everyone likes oysters the first time, you know, or even exactly. sushi or, you know, like, but, you know, there are ways of getting into it. So That's
2: right. And, and I think everybody's tastes evolve you know over time and it seems to me and i guess that's why i love barrel strength whiskey now because you know i might have started in my early days just like you did you know lighter proof a little bit lighter whiskey uh and my taste has evolved because i crave flavor so because bourbon's so complex in nature you know you can enjoy multiple flavors you know from sweet to spicy to earthy you know savory And now I have such a appreciation. And I think that as people evolve, they gain an appreciation for whiskey.
3: What's your take on um, different kind of like barrel finishes and and that whole thing, that whole like realm of uh, that side of the whiskey production as far as like, you know, like I know, like Woodford did a Sonoma Kutcher, like Chardonnay cask, uh, I think a lot like that was maybe 15 years ago or so, I think um that that kind of experimental stuff what's your what's your take on that as someone who is as you said a foodie and loves bolder flavors
2: sure well i am i am always fascinated with innovation um and that's the goal of a master distiller you know what is the expression that they want to create you know what what has their signature on it so as the bourbon industry continues to explore with, you know, barrel finishes and flavored whiskeys and, you know, all of that, I'm willing to try. Uh, and that's, I think, the hat we need to wear is let's try it. But at the end of the day, it's up to the consumer to say, yes, it tastes great. You, you know, had you had me at wearing hats.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Back to
2: hats. Back to hats again. Um, and so I have found some you know, where I used to maybe think, oh, I don't like flavored whiskeys at all, you know, but I've tried many of them and I never I never gave up on them. You know, there's just some that I say do a good job and maybe others that don't. But at the same time, you know, some of the barrel finishes that are happening right now, everything from Cabernet barrel finishes to Sherry finishes uh, can be quite interesting.
4: And- yeah, I had uh, at that party that I mentioned off air that I was just at uh, when it hailed two days ago, I was drinking the John J. Bowman Port Barrel Finished uh, Bourbon, which was, was spectacular, really delightful bourbon. I love right.
3: the Rieger's Kansas City whiskey uh, with the you know it's got a little bit of old Rosa sherry in it. It's like you know it's a, I guess it's like a wet barrel uh, finish. I mean, it's just it's great. I think whiskey and wine go really well well together. But I, I like I like how you skirted the. Uh, the, uh, the flavored whiskey thing with uh, a great grace. Um, <laughs> cause <laughs> <I've> never, <laughs> that was Bravo. Uh, that was yeah, part of my training. yeah, exactly. It was very, very elegant. Um, yeah. I mean like I, I've been the taster for the WSWA, like spirits competition and all this stuff, like for many, many years. And, uh, you know, the cool thing is, is when you, well, you have to go through two days of tasting and you, you do get some palate fatigue, but you get to taste a lot of stuff. You don't know what it is yet, but you just get like the description Oh, this is a 40 year old scotch or whatever. But then like the, and that's exciting. But then you get to the rounds of, uh, ready to drink cocktails and, uh, flavored whiskeys and you're just like, uh, can I... Can I skip this round? <laughs> I, I
2: understand. Uh-huh. I'm a spirits judge as well. And uh, I'm actually a whiskey reviewer for American Whiskey Magazine. And so we do blind tasting. So I have actually 25 samples sitting on my desk right now. have no idea what they are except for the description of, you know, it might be a, a bourbon with a, you know, a beer finish or whatever. And, you know, be what you say you are is my my personal opinion, you know, if that's what you say you are, then I'm going to taste it. And hopefully I can taste that complexity or that added finish, you know, hopefully it elevated the flavor and it just wasn't, you know, you don't pull it away and say, well, that was just weird. You know?
5: Yeah, exactly. I I don't know. I kind of like, in my mind, like if I see a really weird finish on something, like to me, the worst thing that can be is boring. Like if it says right. it's finished in like an IPA barrel or whatever, like I want to be able to taste those hops. I want exactly. to come away and be like, well, maybe I don't want this every time, but it certainly did what it said on the box. You know, uh
2: huh. Right, truth in advertising. We call exactly.
3: That. You're drinking box whiskey. Is that what you <laughs> just said? <laughs> Where are you? I've shopping? been in my apartment for a long great? time. Okay. <laughs> you are getting like boxes of Costco flavored whiskey, huh? That's it's come to this yeah. point in quarantine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> oh, we're all man.
4: we're all out of we're all out of money. We're getting desperate out of here. Exactly. <laughs> the
5: 600 bucks federal's going to run out next month. I got to conserve, man.
2: Well, I, I still have those 25 samples on my desk if y'all can make your way over.
4: I was about to say, it sounds like you got some hard hard but fulfilling work ahead of you with 25 That's samples right. sitting on your desk.
2: Yeah. That's right.
4: Peggy, <laughs> let's roll back to the book just a little bit. I just got my copy yesterday as well, so I haven't had a chance to really read through it, but I've been flipping through it while we're on the air here. What is what is it you would say to someone uh, would be the the big takeaways from the book? What, what can I gain from purchasing this book?
2: Well, I think the biggest uh, gain is to understand your personal style of entertaining. Uh, that that is first and foremost, and to understand too that people have a better time at your party when the host or hostess is actually having a good time, and part of that good time is being prepared. Uh, you know, you all are in the the restaurant world, the culinary world. You know what it feels like when you're ready to open those doors, right? You know, are we prepared? Are we ready? Um, that's how we want a person who's entertaining whether you're a novice or whether you feel like you're your own pro at entertaining um, is to feel prepared and how to get there so that you feel prepared. Also the confidence uh, builder of how to taste whiskey, how to dissect flavors, how to do a food pairing in very easy, simple steps so that you don't feel overwhelmed, uh, so that you don't feel that you have to be an expert uh, in order to describe great bourbons to your friends.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think all that's great and I think that that's a, a you know certainly a, a desire for the general public out there is to have that you know they want to have I don't think they want to be experts. I think they want to have enough knowledge to hold their own in conversation at a cocktail party. And I think that that's what you're describing here, right? They are going to well, get it that. Is. They're going to get it, that if they go through this book.
2: Yeah, and it's certainly not meant to be a cookbook at all, but we put in some of our some of our favorite cocktail recipes and some of our favorite um you know recipes for food, because we, and it might surprise you because some are really, really simple and easy to prepare, uh, but they they go over well through our experience, and people have loved them so far.
3: Cool. Do you yeah. ever have a, you said easy to, to produce and, uh, and put these parties together. Do you ever have like impromptu parties and are you ready with anything like last minute? Because I know that uh, I when I was working at the whiskey shop, I had a customer come in and he was buying a bottle of champagne. And I was like, oh, hey, we're getting a bottle of champagne. Great. What are you celebrating? And he's like, oh, no, I celebrated last night. I'm restocking. He's like, yeah. I always have a bottle of champagne on hand to just in case like something happens. Do you have like a go to party, <laughs> like a uh, like move hack? Uh, you know. I
2: do actually. See, he's, I think that person was really smart because I, I kind of do the same thing. I I keep some stocked bourbons uh, that you know are special to me on the shelf, and my husband's not so happy with me, but I'll put little postcards on it that says "Do not drink." and i do that because it's reserved for guests in kentucky we call that the family whiskey breaking out the family whiskey because you always serve your best to your guests right yeah so so i do kind of put it on its own special shelf i also just did a recent video um on instagram with one of the recipes from the book Uh, i keep frozen pound cake in in my freezer because there's a great recipe in the book uh that's a bourbon pineapple cake uh, and it's so easy to make with store bought, you know, store bought pound cake, and it tastes like pineapple, pineapple upside down cake.
3: And pineapple is a symbol of hospitality, so that's a great move. That's it's it works on so many levels.
2: Yeah, and you'll love it because we mix it with we mix the pineapple with bourbon and brown sugar and <laughs> baked pineapple.
3: Nice, Ooh, yeah. right on. Now my role yeah, is I, at, at my bar, like I've got cabinets, like glass cabinets behind the bar, and they are full of bottles, and they're they're kind of my trophy case of sorts. And there's a lot of stuff. I, I'm a big collector of Maker's Mark uh, special edition bottles. You know, like during like you know a lot of times during election election years, they have like the the different like wax the red, white, and blue ones, the Kentucky right. Derby ones, the the Bill Samuels Senior commemorative like the, the all that stuff. I just I've always been a big collector of of Maker's Mark. I've got the, the bottles from my barrel uh, that came out many years ago, um, and. But, you know, my rule is that, you know, even, you know, if it's, if it's open, you can try it, you know, that's my thing. And then, you know, I have to be the one that opens it that's, that's my rule. But if it's open, anyone can try it. Even if it's behind that glass case, it's kind of like my, uh, like you said, the, the family whiskey, those are my family bottles. And it's like, I I'm the, the, the butler of sorts, you know, uh, you know, like as soon as I open it, then it's, it's fair game to anyone.
2: See, I love that. And, and so many people that come to my home, they'll say, oh, where is your um, vintage whiskey or where where are all your specialty bottles that you don't crack, you know, open? And they're amazed because I only have a few that I keep on the bar uh, from, you know, distilleries I worked with in the past or it might have meant something very special to me. But I say, you know what? We drink them. We don't use them as museum pieces. So...
4: Yeah, this is like an amusement park. All these things are made to be—you uh, know—you ride these rides.
2: <laughs> I ride the ride. I'm gonna use that one time. I'm gonna use that.
4: Yeah, please. I use it all the time. This is this is this is an amusement park, not a museum. That's what I always say.
2: That's great. That's. Uh, great.
4: I always keep, uh, you know, even right now there's a there's a, a liter of each in my freezer of Manhattan's and martinis, and those are certainly for me to sip on when I. Just don't want to do anything uh, besides pour into a glass, but they're there for my guests, mostly.
2: I love um, it. So that,
4: that's how I stay prepared.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, one other thing I thought of that I always keep in my fridge is simple syrup.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Which is so easy sure.
2: to make and store and great shelf life and it's always sure. available.
4: Um, I wanted to touch really quickly on, uh, you know, I'm scrolling through your bio here in my notes, and it says that you uh, are an integral part of creating the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. Let's talk about, A, what that is for our listener, and B, how you uh, were were part of its origin.
2: Well, I was actually working for a distillery at the time, again, back in the 90s, and um, I worked for Woodford Reserve, and there were two women. They were competitors of mine, actually. One worked at Jim Beam. One worked at Maker's Mark and we all three held the same positions. We were all directors of the visitor center operation and we would travel to tourism conferences together and we'd share each other's bourbon at night and we just became friends. I mean, that, that was pure and simple and had a good time together, but we also needed visitor traffic. And so it was not just me, it was two other women and we put our heads together and we said, why don't we just do some cross marketing? You know, if they're going to go to your distillery, maybe they'll go to my distillery and, You know, maybe we should come up with a brochure of some sort and showcase it. So we took the idea to the Kentucky Distillers Association and said, hey, why don't we take and at the time I think there were like seven, like seven or eight distilleries uh, in Kentucky at that time, if you can believe it. Now they're over 60 plus. Um, And we said, why don't we create a, a formal brochure and everybody cross market and we promote this all together instead of everybody using all their marketing budgets. Um, And so they accepted it. The Kentucky Distillers Association uh, ran with it. And now over a million visitors a year come. It's wonderful.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's it's legendary. Even the even the the day walkers that I know from, you know, back in my my life before bars are like, oh, man, have you ever been to the Kentucky Bourbon Trail? It's 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 a well-known thing that's out there. and, And I'm sure it attracts a lot of people.
2: Oh, it does. And people love It's almost like a badge to say I've been to every distillery in Kentucky or, you know, I've been to 20 of them or, you know, and that's what makes it so fun, I think, for the consumer because they're all different. They all have their own brand story, their own unique delivery of culture and uh, and spending time uh, in, the, in your, you know, listeners can find this on the Kentucky Distillers Association website or Kentucky dot com.
3: People used to backpack through Europe, but now they go on the Bourbon Trail. <laughs> I find it—it's like it's very, very important for me and my family because my—I have an identical twin brother, and he's always like been in magazines and design. And he—he um, he used to design Spin magazine, the music magazine, and that was printed down in uh, in Kentucky. And so he would go down to do press checks every, eh, not every month, but pretty Often, like every four months or so, and I would always, you know, try and tag along with him, you know, because he would be down there for you know, press check, which would last you know, maybe a day, uh, just making sure the color and registration everything was right. But we'd spend a few days down there and go kick around, and uh, you know, I, I've got my spots down there that I can still find, you know. Bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, and I'm not going to tell anyone where they are, <laughs> but uh, Good for you. but uh, yeah, so we would go down and just clean house and uh, but you know, also have a really great time doing it, and um, so yeah, th- it's it's a special place for me personally, it's not just because of the bourbon, but because it's just a, it's a wonderful area of the world.
2: Well, it is, so, and really, we have a great dining scene in yeah. Kentucky, incredible chefs. So, dotted in between all that bourbon are beautiful restaurants that. You know, are just really starting to reopen again.
3: Yeah, and if you go to Mictors, I'm the voice of the the, <laughs> the audio video tour. <laughs> so I'm part of the Bourbon I forgot, Trail. I, already,
2: I forgot about that. I didn't know that was one of my projects. I did not know that.
3: Yeah, okay. yeah, yep. Worked with those folks. Uh, great people, and uh, right. I, and also uh, it's right across the street from the Louisville uh, the Louisville Slugger factory and shop so uh, you can go drink a bunch of whiskey and go buy a baseball bat and just (laughs) what could possibly go wrong (laughs) exactly
4: so uh, Peggy before we get towards the end here um, what have you been doing you mentioned earlier a bit of virtual tastings and what uh, approaches have you had to modify or change or what, what advice do you have to, for people, you know, trying to continue to do business like yours uh, during, a, during the pandemic?
2: Sure. Well, <clears throat> I'd, I'd say that first and foremost was, you know, I think everybody went through, you know, when the shutdown started, it was a little bit of shock that the shutdown started and everybody was kind of in denial Uh, but I think we were all pretty comfortable they'd be over at least in four weeks, right? So first things first was rescheduling. Uh, I mean, just the book launch alone, we had 15 events that we had to postpone uh, to summer. And then when summer hit, I think everybody's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is here to stay a little bit longer than we thought. So that's really, when we start um, thinking hard about our delivery and technology and upgrading, you know, microphones and Zoom and, all kinds of platforms because we knew that we had to take um, our speaking engagements on the road. Uh, I'm fortunate that many of my clients, you know, continued to work through, uh, because we, we do a lot of consulting work, uh, whiskey profile tasting, et cetera. But, you know, for the events that we literally appear and give seminars, that is the major shift. But I am learning, and that's my advice to everyone, is that it's okay to learn something new and do i want to be on zoom doing a food pairing for the rest of my life no i do not i'm I, I crave an audience i crave the energy of an audience and being able to watch faces as they take a bite of something and take a sip of bourbon and you know watch that epiphany but for now you know everybody has to pivot and i'm going with the flow and i'm chalking it up for learning new things and learning different things and that's not such a bad thing after 30 years of you know, a, a career uh, is to be challenged a little bit.
4: Yeah, that's well, that's strong advice. And thanks for for sharing that. Um, currently, uh, and and beyond this, how can people get a hold of you? You mentioned your Instagram earlier. To uh, tag your, uh, tell us your handle so people can go check out your Instagram. And and how can people get in touch with you to ask you questions or to follow up on any of the things we've already talked about today?
2: Sure. Well, my handle is very creative. It's Peggy No Stevens, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and they can also visit PeggyNoStevens.com uh, to visit my website, and we're going to be posting uh, even more of these virtual sessions probably in the next couple months, but also um, encourage people, because I did found the Bourbon Women Association, and we do an annual conference every year called the SIPposium, which was to happen in August. Uh, over 300 women come from 26 different states, and we had to go virtual this year, so please be on the lookout at bourbonwomen.org because we have one heck of a lineup of distillers and industry mixologists, et cetera, that we're going to do. And it's going to be our annual fundraiser. And I'm tickled how it's coming together. So be on the lookout for that for August.
4: Great. Yeah, that's outstanding. Good, good I'll for be there. For, <laughs> good for you for being so, uh, you know, flexible and ready to pivot and, and still be able to reach your audience and get the information that you want them to have into their... Well, into their laptops, I guess, or in front of their faces on a screen somehow.
2: That's, that's right. That's,
4: that's great. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, I thank you so much for devoting your time to us, and I can't wait to dig into this book a little bit further and and, and learn a bit more about something that I already love and enjoy. Um, but really appreciate having, your, having you on today.
2: Thank you yeah. so much. Well, thank I- you, and I sure hope to see you guys in Kentucky soon.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I want to come out in August for your event. Um, and I, you know, what we keep saying, we, we uh, you know, in all this uh, isolation, quarantine, that we're like, I'm just ready to party. And uh, now yeah, I'm actually literally ready to party because I have this book to guide me. Um, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> the prep book. Did I tell no, you that? The I, I can do it the right way. better day.
3: Yeah, exactly. So w- what better timing, like I said before. Um, but yeah, great. Thanks so much. It's been a delight having you on the show today. Thank you. All right, that's it for the Speakeasy this week. Check out HeritageRadioNetwork.org for many other programs like this one, and until next time, we chat. Everyone, cheers. Cheers everybody. Cheers.
0: So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll, Lord knows that country music's gonna save your soul, though.
4: The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network.
3: Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place.